You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English and Director of Composition Culture at Emmanuel College, broadcasting from my lovely little office. And I'm joined from an undisclosed location in Athens by David Grubbs. David, how are you doing today? Doing very well, sir. Well, well indeed. And from Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida, Mr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how have you been? Oh, pretty good. Semester's almost over. I like that. Absolutely. Well, the Christian Humanist blog is smoking. Uh, We've got posts on literature, on church music, and all sorts of groovy things. I missed a Bible post, but that will be coming back. We've also got continued feedback on the church music discussion. Uh, Beyond that, not a lot of listener feedback this week. And so, getting right to the business at hand, today we're going to do the second episode of our music trilogy. It's actually become a tetralogy because I had to be somewhere else last last time. Uh, but we're going to be talking about classical music today, and specifically the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. But actually, guys, I was thinking, instead of doing that, I'd like to do a show about soft drinks and people who drink large soft drinks. And about pe- things people eat for breakfast in Indiana. <laughs> And actually, there's a guy here in a banana suit in my office. I thought we might interview him, too. No, actually, we're not, because we're not that kind of podcast. I don't know. I don't know what kind of horrible show. Culture and Christianity. And frankly, there's just not enough shows on the Internet right now dedicated to Christianity and Western culture. Don't you think so, guys? I think one thing we can all agree on is that the Renaissance isn't worth talking about. You know what, Mike? I'm making this promise right now, and you know who I'm talking to out there in internet land. In the spring, there will be a Christian humanist podcast on the Italian Renaissance. You heard it here first. And while we're uh, while we're firing shots at the CWC, I have a couple to deliver from my wife, uh, who also, by the way, is a Renaissance scholar and was offended that uh, that they didn't they didn't bother uh, talking about the Renaissance. Uh, she says that the reason they don't do NBA coverage is because Minnesota is stuck with the worst team in the NBA, the Timberwolves. We tried to come up with a player for the Timberwolves, and the best we could come up with was Christian Leitner, who I don't think has played since 1994, 1995. He was on NBA Jam. That's the only reason we knew him. <laughs> so maybe if your basketball team didn't suck so hard, you'd be talking about the NBA and the Renaissance, CWC. All right. Now that that's out of my system, we really are going to talk about classical music. Also, we love you, CWC. (laughs) (laughs) We'd just like to submit you to good-hearted ribbings. That's that's what that was. Oh, that, and I've always wanted to do a Stephen Colbert riff, and this just seemed like an opportune moment. (laughs) Were you pounding the desk? Uh, I was not pounding the desk, but I thought about it. Uh But at any rate, David, let's go ahead and get to classical music itself. Now, David, the term classical is always an evaluation term before it's a chronological term. And we can tell that because we see various artifacts that are labeled pre-classical. So when we Westerners talk about classical music, we're talking about something as recent as the 18th and 19th centuries. But then when we talk about classical architecture, we usually mean Greek and Roman era. David, what makes an artifact classical, and why do we conventionally put that label on folks like Beethoven and Mozart and Bach? Okay. Um, Well, I guess the first thing I've got to do is be a wee bit pedantic, Um, and I I picked this up from uh, NPR in the days of my youth, a, a wonderful program called Performance Today, which used to be on Birmingham public uh, radio back before they cut it in order to air eight more hours straight of left-wing news. Still airs, um, uh, still airs as a podcast, by the way, along with the piano yeah, puzzler anyway. featuring Bruce Adolph. 
I was very, very disappointed when they cut that. Anyway, um, if if you talk to the orchestral, the you know the NPR orchestral music geeks, um, they'll tell you that classical music is what happens in between in between the Baroque and the Romantic. Um, so uh, Baroque being people like Bach, Handel, Vivaldi. Um, classical uh, the classical period being more associated with people like Mozart, um, Schubert, Haydn, uh, Beethoven, and then the Romantic coming after the classical, uh, Hector Berlioz, Strauss, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Wagner, people like that. Chopin. Right, 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 right. So, um, you know, my my my, fir- my first instinct was to was to go pedantic. <laughs> um, <laughs> why does that all get called classical music? Um, that I, I'm actually really kind of, uh, kind of at sea about, if only because I, 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 I don't, I don't know well what else I would call it. All right. Well, I mean, just to follow up on the original question, I mean, why do we call music from that period? And perhaps I was too broad in periodizing classical music, but then when we talk about classical epic, we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, as far back as eighth century BC, uh, right. in other words, you know. The evaluative term classical, uh, right? What force does that carry? Well, the the more specific period that's called classical, the music is called classical, but there was also a, revi- a revival of classical architecture um, round about that same time, um, and so the music kind of has gotten grouped in with. Uh, that classical revival in in architecture and art and, and other you know other other kinds of other kinds of art are around time um, but I guess the the way the way that we look at it today we we associate it with uh, if 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 we're talking about classical Greco-Roman culture, we're talking about these kinds of moments that are definitive in our in Western civilization, and maybe maybe that's that's what it's getting at that 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 per- music from from that particular period, which is basically 1700s, 1800s, uh, on into the early 1900s, is that it's it's kind of definitive of Western tradition in some way. Um, I, 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 yeah, that's about as, as good as I can do because, um, for the most part, I tend to view it as, as more of a cultural prestige marker than anything else. One, one reason may be that we don't have any surviving music from the Greek era. As far as I know, we have kind of a vague idea of what their music sounded like. It was monophonic for the most part. Um, they, as far as I know, they didn't play chords in ancient Greece, or they didn't certainly didn't play them mm-hmm. with any regularity. Well, so that may be one reason. Is is we don't we we don't really have ancient Greek or Roman music to the best of my knowledge. Right. Okay. Although they did have conceptions of harmony and harmonics in ancient Greece. You're right that chord structures we think of it in the modern era probably isn't part of their musical experience. Well, Michael. I, I, Go ahead, David. Sorry. Well, I was just wondering what what would you think about that one, Nathan? Um, I mean, I I I I go immediately pedantic when I hear use of terms like that. But I mean, also every there... other time. Okay, <laughs> every other... I am the pedant, or at least um, there are particular things upon which I am quite pedantic. Well, but, I mean, uh... you know, I, I guess when I think of classic or classical, you know, I'm thinking of. Uh, something like Michael noted that defines the terms of classification. So in other words, uh, when we talk about symphonies, uh, when we go to define what a symphony is, we almost have to point to Mozart to even start talking about that. Likewise, if we want to talk about what an epic is, we have to point to Homer to start talking about what that is. So, you know, I, I, I think of classical, like I said in the original question, as, you know, more of an evaluative term. As in, you know, this is where a form takes on an identity of its own, uh, and anything that comes after it, uh, chronologically or in some other logic, and we can talk about other logics a little bit later if we want to, uh, is going to be defined in relationship to the classical pieces. So, in other words, I'm, I, I guess mm-hmm. of, of classical 
in terms roughly analogous to what C.S. Lewis calls a golden age uh, in his big book, you know, English literature of the 16th century, exclusive of drama. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily that it is the best, but it is definitive. There is one thing that I did see in kind of poking around to see what what defines classical music that mm-hmm. I did want to bounce off of you guys. Okay. Which is classical music's emphasis on precisely following written notation such that a perf- a performance of a piece is not improvisational but is uh is replicable if that makes sense um you know because it's music music that's written down and you play it off of the score um you can perform it again um in and while there will there will be differences of different uh, between different orchestras' performance of the same symphony, um, the, the it's usually not involved in in you know the guy on the harpsichord kind of going off in his own crazy improvisational solo. Um, but so the hymns I, at my church work on that principle, and I don't think we would call them classical music. Yeah, I mean, I, David, I, I think that certainly notation is a necessary condition for classical music. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Michael, though, that it might not be a sufficient condition for it. I would right. I would suspect that when Man on the Street uses the term classical music, he is just setting it up in opposition to popular music, be that jazz or country or rock or what mm-hmm. have you. Right. Which, which, is why, which is why most people don't take a whole lot of notice of the difference between the Baroque era and the classical era <laughs> and the Romantic era. Let's not forget. And the my favorite era, era, in fact, but um, I, I, I think even, even that definition classical versus pop gets into trouble when you get into the contemporary classical <laughs> era, right. uh, mm-hmm. the, or the contemporary art music era with people like Leonard Bernstein and, uh, and Aaron Copeland mm-hmm. who are nothing if not sure popular music. Right. Right. Well, I mean, Michael, well, uh, the, the term classical music itself, I think we're maybe implying too much unity. Uh, do you want to talk for just a minute about the difference between symphonies and chamber music and oratorios? And since we'll be talking about Bach's Passion of Matthew a little bit later on, if you could dwell just a bit on oratorio, explain that to our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it. Sh- sure. Um, symphonies, let's start with that because it's probably the most familiar. Um, symphonies are almost always long and are almost always played by orchestras. There's not a particular structure, but most of them, most of them use a similar structure that a non-expert like me isn't even going to try to understand or explain. (laughs) (laughs) So if you, if you're interested more in what a symphony, what the structure of a symphony is, ask a music historian or someone who, you know, made it past music theory in 11th grade. Um, (laughs) chamber music (laughs) is... is written for like a small group of instruments and it's called chamber music because you would be able to play it in the chamber of a palace. So you've got your, that, that includes mm-hmm. like string quartets and piano trios and other things like that. Right. Um, it, it's typically quieter, more conversational than symphonies are. Um, then you've got opera, which every, I think everybody pretty much knows. You've got singers and an orchestra and they're performing a dramatic story. So you've got the that's where you get the fat lady in the Viking helmet. And yes, David, I know that Vikings didn't mm. actually wear helmets that look like that. I know, but I, see I was stopping you the, before you said it. The romantic Germanic the romantic German nationalists thought they did, so Is there anything yeah. is there any ill that romantic German nationalists haven't foisted upon the world? <laughs> but uh Finally, we get to church oratorios, which are that that involves an orchestra with a choir and then a number of soloists. Um, it, it might be helpful to think of an oratorio as a Christianized version of an opera. So you get like sacred CCO. subjects. What's that now? CCO. Yeah. Contemporary Christian <laughs> opera. But so you get like sacred subjects and no Viking hats and. and <laughs> So you get the characters and you get solos, which they call arias, of course. If you're ever taking a, a crossword puzzle, you know you know that word. Uh, the characters in oratorios don't usually interact with each other very much. Um, right. That, that's one thing that separates them from operas. And finally, there are secular oratorios, but mostly, mostly when you when you're talking about an oratorio or 
oratorio, you're talking about sacred music used as high art. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, one difference between the the opera and the oratorio is not only the the sacred subject, but also uh, as well. I've never seen an oratorio in which they're also acting out what's being sung. Right. So. There's no blocking on stage per se. The soloists remain among the choir for the most part. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's storytelling going on, but it's in, it, it's it's in the the lyrics of the song and in whatever singing performance the the soloist is putting forth, but they aren't dressed up like I don't know the Apostle Peter or right. whatever or the Evangelist John. And you know, uh, just to alert our listeners to this, uh, Michael will be putting a link in the show notes to a YouTube yeah, it's YouTube playlist uh, where our listeners can watch and listen to the entire St. Matthew's Passion, uh, hopefully after you've listened to our episode. I don't want you to turn us off, so please wait. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if you want to see how this plays out in an orchestra in Amsterdam, uh, it really is just a wonderful, wonderful production of it. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, to move to some more philosophical questions, uh, David, one of the topics that will probably come up in Michael's episode, so we don't want to scoop him too severely, but one distinction that some people make in the modern era in popular music is the distinction between Christian and secular. And predictably, some people have repudiated that distinction, among others, the Kindling's Muse, uh, their latest episode on Christian rock. Um, and they, they point to it as a sad fruit of really niche marketing. Uh, we can sell this to evangelicals, so we'll label it as Christian music. Now, we can save that that pop music discussion for his episode, and we ought to. But right now, if the, if the strict binary of sacred and secular isn't adequate to the range of classical music texts, and I'm thinking largely of, largely of operas and chorales and oratorios, um, there have to be some kind of distinctions, say, between Bach's Matthew Passion, which is a, an oratorio based on Matthew 26 and 27 on one hand, Mozart's Magic Flute, which demonstrates influences of you know masonic enlightenment thought and david here's my third hand that you love so much and then beethoven's (laughs) ninth symphony you know where the chorale is definitely influenced by a sort of german romantic uh you know i i I guess post-hegelianism for lack of a better word but i mean what do you have to say to i mean what kind of distinctions can we make what kind of distinctions ought we to make among the philosophies that animate these pieces of music? Ooh. Well, I I, got to first point out that the Christian secular binary is utterly bunk when we're talking about classical music because it's also taking place during cultural, uh, during, during, in, in cultural environments in which there is no sharp distinction between uh, for instance, church and state. Right, so, so there is that, no secular in the modern sense. Is it utterly right, bunk, so that, though? I mean, are, are you are you willing to say that uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy is as Christian as Bach's Passion of St. Matthew? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm I'm not willing to say that. It's just that I I don't think we can we can say that you know, classical music is Christian or secular that you'll see even the same, even the same composers um, composing different pieces of music to be performed in different kinds of ways for different kinds of settings. But you can look at the individual pieces and say they're sacred or secular. um, Well, I don't know. I mean, Nathan mentions uh, Mozart's magic flute, which, um, you know, is is based on Freemasonry, but which for a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of people at the time was a, a kind of spirituality. It's not necessarily Christian spirituality, but, um, you know, it's, it's not entirely secular either. Um, I don't know as much about, uh, about Beethoven's ninth, but if we wanted to separate them, um, Ah, yeah, it's, 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 it gets to be awfully difficult, I think, um, 
because there's there's more there's more flavors of religion there's more flavors of spirituality philosophy and so forth in the world that can come across in music than just this we are christian or we are secular secular kind of there there aren't two shades of ideology that can come across in music i guess i guess that's what i'd say okay i mean michael um would you care to take a run at this or are you afraid of revenge <laughs> oh i mean i i don't want to i don't want to spend too much time talking about this but i i do think there's a uh, there, there's a division there and i think sometimes it's it's more clear than other times but i think if you look at the ode to joy you you may be able to call it sacred on the on the you know on account of it being unbelievably pagan you know the, the words come from um uh it refers to a singular creator joy beautiful sparks of gods daughter of elysium yeah, yeah, but then later on, in well, and I'm talking about Schiller's poem. I don't know if Beethoven ever set the later stanzas to music, so that's I the first line. That. Joy, well, I know that, I know that, but later on in the oh. Schiller poem, it refers to a single creator. That's I got all you. I'm saying. Well, but but then it, but you wouldn't. Would you call it secular? I would call it pagan. I wouldn't call it Christian. Well, I, I, then I guess we we are in kind of an agreement. There are more colors in this box than, you know, the black and white of Christian and secular. Well, sure, and, I, and you know, part of the point that I was trying to drive across with the question itself is that you know, although if if there are any record stores that still exist, uh, or let me put it this way: if you punch classical music into iTunes, <laughs> since that's the new record store, uh, you're liable to get any <laughs> of those three pieces, right? Uh, but right. that's not necessarily to say that there is a unified, unifying ideology that unites them by any means. I think Michael's right that, you know, Schiller's poem is very German romantic, you know, drawing on those old pagan waters. Uh, Mozart is decidedly influenced by, you know, Enlightenment traditions, you know, probably Freemasonry. Uh, whereas Bach is, you know, really a more traditional German Protestant. Uh, I mean, so, Bach yeah, I mean, has his quote-unquote secular pieces as well i believe he wrote a cantata about how much he likes to drink coffee yeah uh-huh <laughs> which should be performed everywhere but, but I, mean, I would call i would feel perfectly comfortable calling that a a more or less secular piece of music even though it was written by someone who's known primarily for his sacred music well and i i, right. I guess you know my suspicion is and again michael I, I think you're right that we shouldn't dwell too long on this since we're only an hour-long show but i think that that distinction between sacred and secular probably tells us more about our philosophical notions of what secular means than it does about mm -hmm. the music itself. Well, I, I think, too, those categories come more from not the ideologies that produce the music, but the ideologies that consume them. And that's probably yeah. true, too. I think that's true. And also, hopefully we'll get into this, you know, during Michael's uh Christian rock episode, so I do want to start shifting our focus to Bach's Passion of Matthew a bit more narrowly. Uh, Michael, this piece is, and I mean, in a lot of in a lot of settings, is inseparable from a church context. Uh, in fact, the oratorio is written so that roughly half of it happens before the sermon on in a Good Friday service, and roughly the second half of it happens after that Good Friday sermon. Uh, as a preacher when I was researching this, that just terrified me. I, I, I thought, am I really going to share an evening with this wonderful music? Uh, and fortunately, you know, no church I've ever attended had the resources to do this, but, uh, instead they sing, uh, me and God or, <laughs> uh, that, that was the last two episodes. We're not going to return to that, <laughs> but, uh, Michael, if you could, why don't you go ahead and cue up, uh, what people might've heard right after the sermon, on the crucifixion of Jesus. You'll hear how the instrumentals lead the congregation uh, back into the alto's aria and the choral response. Michael, play us a few seconds of that.
right. Well, now the question that I have for you, I mean, most new symphonic and chamber music, and you've already alluded to this, Michael, uh, these days is being composed in university music department settings. And most, although not all, choral music is happening in churches without functioning orchestras, although happily some still have organs and pianos. Um, Michael, what kinds of resources did Bach have at his disposal uh, that we postmoderns simply don't? And what kinds of differences does that make to the way that he does music as distinct from the way that we do music now? Well, first, I want to talk about what we have and he, that he didn't. Um, he had, of course, an organ. He comes comes from a family of organists and cantors, and so the the organ and singing would have been, you know, much the same as it is now. But the piano didn't exist for most of his career. It was invented in the early 18th century. Really, he didn't play one until the very end of his career. So what he would have had to use as a keyboard instrument instead of a piano is a harpsichord or a clavichord. Right. And the mm-hmm. difference is that those strings get plucked instead of struck, so there's absolutely no volume control, which is why pianos are called pianos. They're really called pianoforte, which means soft and loud. Mm-hmm. So you hear that in a lot of box pieces, especially if you compare them to composers of the next era. Um, box pieces tend to be one volume throughout. Um, so that's a, that's a difference really between Baroque and contemporary art music more than church music. I would say the difference between Bach and current sacred music is that Bach is far, far more complex. Um, he may not have more instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a lot of his pieces that are straight organ and straight harpsichord or clavier or just voices, but you've got far more complex and varied music, um, Not and of course not just in comparison to choruses, but hymns and, and the new the new choral music as well. Um, you get that rich counterpoint in Bach, the melodies that run underneath the main melody. That's, from my experience, very rare in contemporary music in general, except in things that are consciously paying homage to Bach. And when I think of contemporary music that pays homage to Bach, I always have to think of um, the old electric light parade at, uh, at Disney World, which it's all that Disney music played with the uh, weird Bach counterpoints and stuff. But I, I would say that counterpoint <laughs> is the is the main thing he used that we don't use, certainly not to the degree he did. David, I, I want to follow up, I mean, with, with some of the points that you made last week while I wasn't here, you know, about uh, the dangers of current worship settings where music becomes performance. I think it's almost beyond argument that music this complex has to be a performance and yet it was part of as i said a good friday service do you want to make distinctions between the two kinds of performances that we're talking about here or do you see the same sorts of dangers as being present 300 years ago as would be present three days ago um well i i guess the fur the first thing um that comes to mind is that musicians, the actual musicians playing the instruments, um, weren't yet rock stars. Mm. Uh, when when this oratorio was performed, uh, the people in the congregation, you know, if if they knew the people who were in the choir, they'd be like, "Hey, that's Uncle," you know, yeah. <laughs> Hines or whatever, you know, wave to Uncle Hines, don't distract him. Um. But there, but there wasn't that 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 cult of personality around the performers, mm, um, good. which which I think is something that we that we picked up from the Romantics, frankly, um, the idea that that the musician is, you know, this this gifted, godlike, and more sensitive and authentic person who, in their performances, you know, uh, I somehow qualitatively different from the rest of us at least my understanding of it is that musicians were seen more as craftsmen mm. um you know they were they were laboring to make to make a beautiful thing and that beautiful thing was the music um but you know one violinist would be interchangeable with another violinist of equal skill and um, the tenor and who I, sings the part of the evangelist probably wouldn't put his foot up on the monitor Yes, no, no. <laughs> in that uh, grand also, o- the or- opera trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, in this particular oratorio, there are a lot of different. Uh, there are a lot of different parts 
for different soloists to say. I, I, I mean, as I was watching it, um, you know, I wouldn't say that there's like one face of the oratorio. That, oh, not know, by that's any means. Guy, that's the guy who gets to be the star. You know, it's not like well, it's not like an opera in that in that sense. So, um, I I, th I think the, the the performance the performance of it practically, um, because the because of the division of the labor, but also the differences between the way we we view musicians now culturally and the way they they viewed musicians then. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that uh, our rock culture tends to, you know, rocks, rock bands tend to be like, you know, max like five guys, six guys, okay. maybe. All right. And you know, uh, Michael, you count I, I want to go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> if you count the guy on the keyboard, you know. Right, right. David, Michael, I, I before, before Nathan asks me another question, I want to ask David another question. I'm sorry to come and do the show. <laughs> uh was there a cult of personality around the composer yet in Bach's time? I really don't know about Bach. The first one that I know of with a cult of personality around him is Mozart. Surely, surely Mozart had one, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, uh, but I, I don't know Mozart. about... Right. I don't know about before then. The first musician rock star that I can think of off the top of my head is Paganini. Um, But that's because people... Thought he pretty much would have had to sell his soul to Satan in order to play a violin that that well. Plus, um, he made a good sandwich. Yeah, so eventually composers did have kind of a rock star thing going, but I, I think that was that was after Mozart. Um, I think I remember something about Schubert, maybe, maybe it was him. Well, most of anyway. the uh, most of the composers in the Romantic era, most of the ones we remember, I believe, were were pretty famous. So you sure. even you even get someone like Chopin, you know, doing the 19th century version of jetting around and having affairs with George Sand and whoever mm -hmm. else. The you right, know, George Sand, right. of course, a woman novelist. Now, we're also kind of influenced in our perception of these of these characters by by movies like. You know, Amadeus or Immortal Beloved or um, whatever that movie was with Tchaikovsky in it, in which he's dying of syphilis while the War of Eight, or while the 1812 Overture is playing. Um, can't remember the name of it. We would anyway, be influenced but, if anybody had actually seen Immortal Beloved anyway. <laughs> well, I saw it. <laughs> There's well, no such I, movie about Bach, which is why I'm wondering if, if that cult of personality just didn't exist. Bach's would probably oh, be a okay. lot of him drinking coffee at home and writing. Uh, I do know one one little story. I, I think it's about Bach, um, about how they would how he liked to take naps and his kids would play a piece on the harpsichord but leave off like the last note, and <laughs> he would he would have to get up and finish it. I've heard um, that story that as well, David. I... I think that was about Bach. If anyway. it's not true, it should be. <laughs> yes. Teach well, Mike, I, I just want to follow up with another point that you all made last week, and this is my attempt to get into last week's episode without the use of the <laughs> time machine. Uh, but one of the objections you had as well to the rock-style worship service is the difficulty of participation on the part of the congregants. I mean, obviously, this sort of music is not something that you sing along to necessarily. Um, again, I mean... Since you know, since both of us are influenced by phenomenology, I mean, what are the complicating factors that make this a different kind of phenomenon than the rock star worship service? As you mentioned, the the performers kind of take a backseat to the music, so that's one thing. Um, another is I think churches don't tend to do these sorts of things, except on very special occasions. Now that wasn't. The pr probably wasn't the case in Bach's own time. I know that most of his pieces were written for specific uh, church services, but mm -hmm. um, mostly now, when you see when you see a church doing St. Matthew's Passion or Handel's Messiah, it's going to be a, a special service that they invite everybody in town to, and so it's right. really less of a worship service and more of a concert. And you know, fine with me. Uh, I, I probably would not be in favor of singing these things on a regular Sunday morning because there's not that participatory thing. And because if you sing it in uh, in a language other than English, which I, I, be I believe the St. Matthew's Passion is in another language, uh, 
you know, <laughs> yes. it's a there, there's German. no there's no there's no comprehension there. Right. So, uh, I would right. I would be equally against it, except that most churches, when they do this stuff, do it as a special concert, and that's great. Mm-hmm. All right, and and the ones that I've seen provide uh, uh, provide translations. Yeah, uh, and that does make a difference. Which, incidentally, a translation will also appear appear in the show notes. Nathan uh, um, painstakingly translated it by hand. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, David, I, I want to turn to some modern receptions of Bach, and and one of the things that bothered me as I was preparing for the show, and it, actually as I was reading some of the comments on the YouTube clips, uh, one those. of the things that one of the things that bothered me was that so many atheists are commenting on this Bach oratorio and insisting uh, that Bach's Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with enjoying his music, uh, that one can listen to something like Movement Fifty Four. Uh, which is the basis for the English hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, uh, and enjoy the sublime. They, they, they never say what they mean by sublime. We might talk about that here in a bit. Uh, but, Michael, so that our listeners can hear Movement 54 and so that our audience you know, can hear this wonderful passage, uh, let's go ahead and listen to a few seconds of that so our audience knows what we're talking about. This is a chorale, a choral response, uh, lamenting the fact that the sacred head is bloodied and wounded, uh, and because of the sins of the world, uh, the sacred has been destroyed by the vulgar. Um, now, David, I know that we Christians are not innocent of this either. We've already talked about, and Michael has utterly destroyed the Ode to Joy with his Manwich clips. Um, <laughs> and yet those appear at the outsets of a lot of Protestant services as a sort of prelude to the worship service. Uh, Just try Michael. singing them again, by the way, without hearing the Manwich song in your head. <laughs> like, I said, like I said, Michael, you've utterly ruined it. Uh, but at any rate, there's some disconnections going uh, from art to context, from context to art, in both directions. Um, to what extent, David, do you think that the lyrical content of the original piece and really the original purpose of the piece limit the usage of those pieces in contemporary settings? And In other words, you know, are these atheists as entitled to O Sacred Head Now Wounded as I, a Christian, am entitled to O Sacred Head Now Wounded? Mm. So you're 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 wanting to contrast as it does versus as it should. <laughs> well, I'm asking, is that a valid contrast? Um. Uh, I I I would agree with you. Um. I but well, I don't know what I think. What are you agreeing with? <laughs> well, um. I I. I they may sincerely. I I saw those comments. They may sincerely believe what they put down there. You know, they, they may sincerely believe their comments, but all they did was make me so sad because uh, to, to me, it would be like an atheist taking communion at my church and then saying, I got just as much out of that as you did because the bread tasted good. And I actually compliment your your church's selection of a port wine, <laughs> right? And it's like reading Dante for the mythic structure. But ex exactly, I'm like, you know, like <laughs> that's that's so so sad. Um, it, also, you know, kind kind of like listening to listening to the rousing. Uh, 
you know, score of a film that you've never seen that when you when you have the full that full experience of not only, you know, sort of naked music, but also the narrative that goes along with it, how much more meaningful uh, it it becomes. I, 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 it, it, it made me frankly sad. OK, well, let, let me because and it's one of your favorite Nathan phrases, David, let me push back a little bit. I mean. Okay. I am a person who really enjoys reading Goethe, even though I am not a German romantic. Uh, I'm a person who enjoys reading uh, Stephen Crane stories, even though I'm not a naturalist atheist type. Uh, am I missing the point of those stories, uh, reading them and still remaining Christian? Well, you're not. No. You're not missing the point unless you go around claiming that there's no atheist component to it, or that, or that that's not that he didn't have that in mind or that it's, that there's not something um, fundamentally atheist about the blue hotel. Okay. David, I cut you off. I apologize. That's all right. Um, I, I'm going to cheat here. Uh, I think that we can do it and they can't. Uh, <laughs> because direct your emails to David Groves. <laughs> <laughs> because I believe that all truth is God's truth. But not all of God's truth is also atheists' truth. Um you know all truth is all all truth is God's truth. I can you know I can you know Christ would always take common things and turn them into images of sacred things. But to to take the to take those moves and work back from them um, to say, I'm going to take this this piece of music that was intended to to lead towards the sacred and divorce it from that. Um, it's it's uh, it's actually less than it was, you know, because because the the moves that we would make, you know, in in reading a secular story and seeing truth in it and appreciating it. Um, because I would see all truth as God's truth, I'm, I'm dignifying by that move, um, this 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 human work. Um, I'm seeing that that a human has done something well, and by doing something well, has participated in that beauty and truth and goodness that has its ultimate source in God. But because I have the particular you know perspective on the world that I do. On truth, on beauty, and on goodness, uh, I don't think you can work it the other way. And I think, uh, and and so, yeah. I want to point out that atheists are absolutely free to enjoy "O Sacred Head, Now Wounded," either in the uh, in the hymn setting or in the in the oratorio. They're free to enjoy sacred music, and they're free to say, "I enjoy it on a level other than believing it." I don't have a problem with that. Um, no, neither do I. The, the the problem the problem comes if and I haven't seen those comments so I don't know if this is actually happening but the problem comes if they're insisting they're not missing something by ignoring that part of it I, I believe that's what the that's the assertion that I as I remember it maybe it was not phrased quite that way but that that was the assertion that that we don't miss anything by coming to the music in this way well that's and clearly that ridiculous. Case, I mean, the, that, that that's case, like I, I that's like me disagree. listening to bad religion. So I'm, I'm starting to think of something written, uh, some music written explicitly from an atheist perspective. It's like me listening to bad religion and saying, well, that's really Christian music. <laughs> right. Which, incidentally, I mean, you were talking about uh, Schleiermacher last episode. I'm trying to go back in time again. Uh, and, I mean, that seems to be <laughs> precisely what Schleiermacher does with a lot of the world's uh, religious traditions is to say, all right, you know, these are basically all, you know, the same feeling of dependence and the same sublimity. Um, do one of you want to take a run at, I mean, what is this word sublimity? Because I think it's important to this discussion. What is the sublime? It's been a long time since I read Coleridge, but sublime is when you look at a waterfall, right? And and beautiful isn't enough. <laughs> you look at the waterfall and it makes you, it gives you awe. It, it takes you outside yourself. Mm -hmm. do, do I have that about right? I 
Like I said, it's been a long time since I read Longinus or Coleridge. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you're right. It does originate, you know, in the Roman period with Longinus. It's picked up not only by Coleridge but also by Kant, and before that by Edmund Burke. And you know what I found interesting about that choice of sublime uh, is that you know just as Michael just said, I mean, it already pre- presupposes in its very grammar uh, the idea that there is a reality beyond the self. And I mean, it it, it strikes me as odd, frankly, uh, to insist upon that word and then insist that, you know, a materialist, atheist outlook on it doesn't miss anything. You know, it's almost as if to say, you know, it can be self-contained and what the self-containment reveals is that it's not (laughs) self-contained. And again, you know, we're, we're in the iPod world. Uh, after all, we are linking you to free YouTube clips uh, anyone is free, as Michael said, to enjoy it, uh, but there are certain claims about it, I would agree with both of you guys, that are basically nonsense claims, uh, you know, things like it is entirely irrelevant to the music. And Well, and, mm-hmm. and you have to figure Bach's religious beliefs must have influenced the way he wrote, not just the, the, the lyrics, which I don't think... He he probably directly wrote I don't I don't know but uh, but the way he wrote the actual music especially with someone like Bach where the the music is so incredibly ordered and precise that is obviously coming out of his religious worldview. Sure, sure. And, and then yeah, you look the... at someone like Beethoven who I mean is is the opposite of ordered and precise even though I, I prefer Beethoven to Bach and that that's clearly coming from his own. Um, Emotional life, if not his religious life, because I know his religious life is the subject of great debate. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Well, and Michael, the lyrics I mean, are I, Bernard of Clairvaux. What's that now? Okay. Uh, the lyrics are Bernard of Clairvaux, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I believe that's right. But yeah, so I mean, it, it should even show up in the music. You would expect it to. If if religion is important, um, it, it must influence the way you do your life's calling. Right. And Michael, if I can propose another analogy, I, I like your bad religion analogy. If I could propose another one, though, uh, that reading of Bach, if I can use that participle, gerund actually, uh, reminds me of you know the sort of affluent Western European American college kid making that trip to India and trying to appreciate Hindu spirituality, uh, but then insisting that he doesn't actually believe in any of those gods or anything he's just trying to be spiritual sure (laughs) and you know i you know that kind of reading i mean i i will say you know i i personally do enjoy you know beethoven as well as bach and you know i do enjoy uh a lot of artifacts from a lot of traditions whose tenets i would not necessarily profess myself but i guess i always approach it from a certain critical distance that i would not call an approach of sublimity. Yes. And I mean, I, I mm-hmm. guess that's, you know, I, I guess the sublime word that I'm hung up on. And as you guys know, I can beat a dead horse, uh, like nobody's <laughs> business, but I mean, it, it, it really is that word that I keep returning to. I'm thinking, you know, if, if you're already granting nine yards, you're saying it's sublime, you know, why a not? Transcendence. Just, yeah. Suspect, why not go that 10th yard? I suspect most of the internet atheists making those comments have not given serious thought to Coleridge, Kant, Burke, or Longinus. I, I suspect think? no. I suspect when they, <laughs> I suspect when they use that word, they mean real pretty. Oh, all right, fair enough. All right, so I am overreading internet inter- internet atheists. Uh, that, that's my that's for- my impression. But like I said, they I don't know these people. On performance today. <laughs> Uh, well, at any rate, Michael, um, as we approach the end of the show here, I mean, since we are teachers, uh, I want to finish with some educational rants. Uh, one trend in modern education is, of course, the maniacal focus on technical and career training. Uh, you know, Stan Fish has been writing about this recently. There's all sorts of books uh, being published about the fall of the liberal arts. Uh, and some of the programs most susceptible to budget cuts, you know, right now when state funding is dropping, all that sort of thing, the ones that get cuts are the ones that don't receive money from corporations, the ones that don't necessarily have gigantic enrollments, 
uh, things like classical music. Michael, what good, if any, uh, do you see in having students listen to and think of carefully about pieces like the Matthew Passion? Uh, and what sorts of future do you see for such music? Well, I think almost anything that's going to stretch students is a good thing. And I think that's particularly true of classical music because students tend to think it's beyond their intellectual and emotional comprehension, which it's not. Mm-hmm. But but they think that. Um, I think learning how to listen to complexity makes you into a stronger thinker in all sorts of areas. So that's a practical argument. I'm not known for my practical arguments, but there's one. Um, and then you can think about holistic views of education. So if you're already a liberal arts major, you need to know the music of the era which you study. I mean, that that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for Christians, listening to something like the St. Matthew's Passion al- allows you to approach that pivotal event of mankind from a different angle. We're, we may be used to movies about the crucifixion we may even be used to christian rock songs about the crucifixion but when we have to pay attention to a classical excuse me david baroque oratorio <laughs> on the same on the same subject we're going to uh we're going to see things in a different way and i think that's a really good thing and i, I did want i wanted to end my little uh my, my response to your question with this uh this idea from madeline lingle who loved bach and she said that she listened to him and played him when she felt like the world was spinning out of control. That Bach, mm. in particular, is this steadying force because it's also put together and clean and ordered. And I, I think we probably need that as much today as she did in her day. Um, mm. So Bach is a good thing. Classical music in general is a good thing. All right. Rant for us, David. Oh, I... I th- well, yeah, I would agree. With, I would agree with Michael about stretching students, um, but all, particularly in the programs where uh, they would have to learn a musical instrument and perform it. Um, I, 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 that is that's a particular kind of intelligence, which, um, frankly, cultures need to keep up, and uh, the you know the maths and the sciences. Uh, those aren't the only kinds of of human intelligence that we've got, and we need to we need to keep up those other kinds of of, of technical mind body excellence. Um, so purely pragmatically, um, I'd I'd support it for that. But um, you know, for those of the other reasons that Michael cites as well, of uh, of being able being able to understand history is also being able to understand uh, the cultures in which those events happened. Um, you. You know, I, I I feel like having having become familiar with different periods of music, like I I feel like I get kind of the personality of a period more by listening to its music. What did mm-hmm. they like to hear? Um, what what did they like to listen to? I, I think that's it's it's a it's it's useful in getting uh, getting that kind of sense for uh, for for a historical period. Um, I know in my own my own whatever education I have in classical music, as I said before, comes from being a kid listening to public radio and listening to especially programs that would play music and then talk about the conductors and would interview conductors and musicians and talk about performance choices. Mm-hmm. Um, they would talk about composers and the histories of, of pieces of music, uh, all, all of those kinds of things made uh, made me much more aware at a very young age of how music gets made and why it gets made so that it's not, uh, for me, when I turn on the radio, it's not this found object that I can just turn on like a spit. Um, and that, that I think is all, is also useful as well. All right. Uh, I think that one of the things that classical music can do for us in a way that a lot of art forms can't is that it can teach us to discipline our desires uh and and i'm pulling this idea you know it it has a long pedigree uh edmund burke talks about it aristotle talks about it augustine talks about it but it really gets its roots uh in plato's dialogues and i I just want to talk for a moment about the phaedrus in particular because in that dialogue plato talks about how desire itself eros in the greek uh 
has as its initial object uh, whatever visceral, ephemeral, and of course because it's Plato, bodily pleasure that happens to be at hand. Uh, and you know, in in that particular dialogue, he's talking about sex, but you could just as easily imagine this as uh, a bit of music, a bit of food, anything else. And what Plato says is that desire is not in itself a bad thing, because that's generally not how Plato operates. But he says that you can reach for higher goods, transcendent goods, if you will back off for a second and discipline that desire and live in that tension for a little while. And what happens uh, in the case of sexual desire in the Phaedrus is uh, you learn to desire not a particular beautiful body, but a beautiful body, the form of the beautiful body. And then if you hold that tension off, then you learn to desire beauty itself. Now, I'm not a thoroughgoing Platonist. I do believe that, for instance, uh, it is better to listen to St. Matthew's Passion than to think about the disembodied idea of beautiful music. Uh, But I do think that that general trend of disciplining the desires uh, is something that, especially at a Christian college like Emmanuel College where I work, really ought to be part of our education. You know, part of who we are as Christians in the world, uh, we ought to be resisting this general cultural trend towards the three-minute single that you download off of iTunes, you listen to 30 seconds of of it, and then you pop over to the next song. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong about that. You know, Plato would be the first to say that his ideal city and republic wouldn't last very long if people didn't want to have sex. Uh, But there are (laughs) desires that transcend the momentary and the ephemeral. And part of aspiring to higher things is learning to learning to desire. And of course, you know, Mm. Michael's favorite line from Augustine uh, hit us, Michael, with the first line of confession. Uh, You have made us restless until our hearts rest in you. If we think of that as something that has analogs now, it's not identical with rest in God. But if we think of analogous desires for transcendent things, transcendent music, transcendent art, transcendent relationships with other human beings, perhaps even the sublime in that more Burkean sense, uh, I have to think that that is a worthwhile goal of a liberal arts education, especially a Christian liberal arts education. So, that Nathan, about, yeah. to what extent do you utilize uh, art music in your, uh, in your classes? Uh, actually, I do use some of it when I teach Plato. Uh, in fact, we're coming up on the section of Republic right now where Plato talks about two plateaus of desire. One desire which simply fulfills a lack in the body, and then a second desire which is uh, transcendent, which is for those things that are eternal and good and beautiful and true. Uh, and you know what I often, often do for my students is I do play uh, music of varying complexities, and talk about how, you know, those in the room who have had some musical training simply are capable of enjoying the latter to a greater degree than the former. And, you know, usually that's a, a fairly decent way uh, to get students into that frame of mind, you know, so that they don't think that, you know, Plato's just being silly when he says uh, there are desires for mathematics that are better than desires for sex. You also have to remember mm. mathematics for Plato includes music, doesn't it? Music is Oh, music. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mathematics as manifested across time. Yeah. Well, the Pythagorean influence as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you know, uh none of us is Pythagorean because we are all full of beans and that is all we have time for this week. Uh <laughs> if you don't get that listeners, go look up Pythagoras beans on Google. It'll give you an immediate result. Uh, I want to thank Michael Farmer and David Grubbs for talking Bach with me for an hour. Uh, now, we're, we're going to break off from our music trilogy next week because I have committee meetings and faculty meetings and all kinds of groovy meetings that I have to attend, lead, and otherwise suffer through. Uh, so next week, what are we doing, Michael? It's going to be me, David, and my old friend Carla from graduate school, and we're going to be discussing The Fairy Queen, which Carla just finished her master's thesis on. Very good. And after that, we will resume the music trilogy with an episode on Christian rock. And I believe we will have uh, minor Christian rock star Jamie Bozeman of Luxury, and they sang as they slew, as our special guest that week. We're working that out. It looks like it's going to happen. So he should Excellent. be able to complain about the uh, the industry mightily. In the meantime, fair <laughs> listeners, if you would like to read what we write, 
You can find that at www.christianhumanist.org slash chb, as in blog. Uh, you can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We beg, we plead, we exhort, we fall on our knees and say, please write us a review on iTunes, uh, give us a five-star rating. Uh, we do try to get this out to people who would enjoy it, listen to it, benefit from it. Any help that you fair listeners can give us, we mightily appreciate. In the meantime, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer telling you, our listeners, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Yeah.